Welcome to Almost 30. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Lindsay and Krista, and we're so happy you're here. We are best friends, co-hosts, business partners. Oh, yeah. We had that interview the other day. And we sat down with her. She's like, so are you guys friends or do you actually hate each other? <laughs> I was like, I love that question. I, I loved that I question. I love the honesty of that question. What if we were like, but it's like, I'm trying to think of if I would know someone that if they did hate each other, they'd be able to be like, yeah, we actually. Someone would be like, yeah, we don't. Yeah, yeah. we don't fuck with each other. There's actually this podcast I used to listen to years ago. Two women, they were amazing. And they actually started to really have beef. And they ended up just doing the podcast and hating each other. Hmm. Yeah, they had like a therapist come on. It was crazy. Oh, wow. It was crazy. Yeah. Wow. It was I mean, it definitely, you know, well, like any relationship, we do we take we do the work for sure. You know, it's not like it's it's an actual real relationship. Yeah. It's real. We're so just so you guys were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> we are so happy you're here. Thank you for choosing almost 30. We love you guys. You don't have to be 30 to listen. It was just what we were going through when we started 6 years ago. And we trademarked the name and we got to stick with it, baby. Yep. I'm all about trademarks. <laughs> She's trademark happy and I I'm love it. I'm trademark happy. <laughs> Today's a really special episode, kind of a full circle moment um, with Gay Hendricks. His work has been super impactful for both Krista and I over the years, especially during our Saturn returns and just many of life's transitions, whether relationship or career and um, to meet him in person to visit him in Ojai in his sweet oasis he has with Katie, his wife, was something I'll never forget, truly. It was beautiful. Being in Ojai is amazing. Being outside was amazing. And being at someone's house who we've respected and known about for so long, Gay is a huge leader in the space. So he's really been like an icon in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. He earned his PhD from Stanford. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers like Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, Conscious Loving Ever After. Mm-hmm. He's been on Oprah, CNN, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. He is he is truly an icon. And so to meet him in person and really ground down with him in so many of his concepts around upper limiting, mm-hmm. around conscious loving, was just really, really powerful and felt new. You know, I was going into this conversation being like, wow, he's totally talked about his books and these concepts so many times. And I just pray that, you know, we can bring a newness and yeah, just our own experience of his work to this conversation. And it felt really, it felt like that. It felt new. And he's just more excited about uh, bringing this to the world than ever, which is so cool to see. Yeah. He's a delight. That is something just pulling back the curtain a little bit. So when you're interviewing people like Lindsay and I do for the podcast, you know, over 500 episodes, oftentimes we're interviewing people that are really seasoned, have been doing this work for a long time. Someone like Gay, who's been in this space for over 45 years, has written powerful books. He's been on hundreds of interviews. So you have this moment where you want to appease the person you're interviewing so they're having fun, they're engaged in conversation and they're excited and they're enjoying something feels that feels fresh and new. So you want to talk about things that feel really pertinent, fresh and new. But then there's also the moment of the audience sometimes doesn't know who they are, hasn't read their work, wants to learn more. So it's like a battle, not a battle, but it's a balance of appeasing the person you're interviewing by keeping them interested and excited about the conversation and seeing things in a new light. And then there's the other side of making it 
digestible for people that are brand new to the person. So there's such a push and pull sometimes because when you're in person with someone, you tend to choose who's right in front of you. Sure. And you're like, let's make this fun. Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. But then there's also in the back of your mind, like the audience might want to go in on the basics of the big leap, the basics of the genius zone, the basics of conscious loving. So it's like a balance. With this one, it was really beautiful because Gay really reminded me how even when we are talking about the basics of each of his work, which is powerful, and I saw things in a new Mm -hmm. way, he's also so passionate about what he does that it always feels new. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we basically focus on the big leap. So the concept of the upper limit and you can experience an upper limit in career and relationships. Um, This really lives in your subconscious and could potentially be keeping you from living and expressing fully. Um, We talk about his book, The Genius Zone, which is kind of an underrated favorite of mine. Um, Our friend Susie Batiz, she's very good friends with Gay Hendricks, but she would talk about the genius zone a lot and really opened our eyes up to this potential where Krista and I say within, you know, our work within almost 30 could be more in our genius. We definitely are in in our zone of excellence with so many things, but the zone of genius is really that sweet pocket Mm -hmm. uh, where so much magic happens and so much energy is created and cycled. In the genius Mm -hmm. zone, it's such a beautiful way to think about alignment. I think so many people talk about alignment in our space. They're like, I want to be aligned. And I think I like genius zone because it breaks it down in a way that both someone in the corporate world and someone in our world can understand where the more you are in your zone of genius, Mm -hmm. the more things flow, the happier you are, the more aligned you are. And so the genius zone really breaks down the four steps to that. So it's starting in your zone of incompetence. So that's not knowing anything, not really understanding something to zone of competence. So that's being able to do something at like a average level. Zone of excellence, which is oftentimes what happens when people are at corporate jobs. They've been in it for a long time. They've been doing it for 30 years. They're very great at it. It might not be aligned for them. And then how can you move from all of those zones to where you're in your zone of genius, which is your purpose, your dharma, in that space where everything flows and everything feels really, really good. Mm -hmm. It's powerful. And then we also talk about conscious loving. So uh, we touch on, you know, the, the opportunity within relationships when it gets hard, how to discern whether it's an opportunity for growth or misalignment. Um, how you can use relationships as a tool for growth, how to go from unconscious to conscious loving requirements for co-committed relationships, and this power balance that seems to come up in these close relationships and how to create more of a balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys are going to love this one. If you did, I would share it with a friend. This is how we've grown the show. And it's also really kind and fun to have conversations when you hear an inspiring podcast like this. You can talk to friends. You can kind of use it as a way to start an even deeper relationship together. You can find more information about Gay at Hendrix.com, at the foundationforconsciousliving.org, and then on Instagram at Gay Hendrix. Yeah. I love his little Insta. Me too. It's It's like plants and his wife. I'm like, that's my (laughs) dream man. (laughs) Thank you again, Gay. We love you. And thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. Uh, And if you want to learn more about what we're doing over here at Almost 30, visit almost30.com. We have courses and programs, a community, a membership, and more. And then make sure to follow us on Instagram. We're on there having a good old time, Almost 30 podcast on Instagram. 
And I'm at Lindsay Simsick. And I'm at It's Krista. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oh, therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to, but I have been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy. So crazy, but it has changed my life and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better, made my career better. I am a better mom. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter and sister. Y'all, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do, this is it. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you get matched and you're like, yeah, not quite a fit, they make it easy and it's free to change. But I've had a lot of friends try BetterHelp and love it. So I really, really encourage you to start therapy. It's been the best decision I've ever made for myself. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash almost 30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like this is a new type of audio that, um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future. Um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just, I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 
for 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. Well, we're so thankful to be here with you in person. Mm -hmm. Your work has been profound, especially during our Saturn return, which that transition from your 20s Mm -hmm. to your 30s, which is the period in which we started the show. And yeah, it's just surreal to be here with you. And we obviously are friends with Susie Petiz as well. So we've kind of soaked up and and, and drank drank your wisdom through staying with her a couple of times. So it's just a beautiful full circle moment. But to give you a little background on Almost 30 briefly, we are a podcast that started during that time where things are just confusing. (laughs) From your 20s to your 30s, you feel like you should know a lot more than you do. Mm -hmm. And school didn't really prepare you for it. I don't know if parents generally really prepared you for it, but a lot of things come into question. And a lot of doubts and fears arise around career and relationships and purpose and you know, a whole list of things. So we started this show and really built a community around those questions and leaning on one another and healing through conversation and curiosity. This conversation, I'm sure will go many different ways, but really we want to support people in their evolution. In developmental psychology, we say that your job in your 20s is to experiment. Mm. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you enjoy your life. But feel free to enjoy it before that. But yeah, that's typical. You know, a lot of times people are so busy in their 30s and 40s finding their life and building their life that they don't kind of huh, yeah, enjoy it as totally. they go along. Yeah. yeah, how you do the work is the work. That's, I think, something that I've really settled into as I got older is the process is the point. There is no end goal. There is no destination. And I think that was a lot of the idea I had in my 20s was like working towards something. And then once I get there, I'm going to be happy that kind of if-then mentality. Where were you in your 20s and 30s? Like, where were you mentally? What was going on in your life? Do you feel like you were following that same path? Like you spoke about with developmental psychology? Yes. And also, I had a big event happen in my 20s when I was 24 years old that changed my whole life. And so my transition from my 20s to my 30s was profoundly influenced by that. And what happened was that when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I was taken around to all sorts of different medical experts because I was the only fat kid in a family of skinny people. So there was something wrong with me because I ate the same food that they did and I gained weight tremendously. Even by the end of my first year, I was in that top 1% of -hmm. baby weights. And so something was clearly wrong. So I was taken around to different specialists, and for a while I was put on diet pills, Mm. and for a while I was given shots and things. But the problem never really got handled until I had a, I think I'd call it an enlightenment experience when I was 24 years old. I was 300 pounds at the time. I weigh about 180, and I'm six feet tall, so I'm relatively normal-looking weight Mm -hmm. at present. But in those days, I weighed 100-some pounds more than I weigh right now. And I also was at a real crisis emotionally because I was in a relationship that was really toxic, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I'd been in it for a couple of years and I was so 
tied up in that. I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And also I had a kind of a crappy job at the time and I smoked two or three packs of Marlboros and I wore big thick glasses. So pretty much you wouldn't recognize me today. (laughs) And I had the gift of an experience though. I went out for a walk one day after I'd had a big argument. This was in New Hampshire where I was working as a teacher counselor at a small boarding school for delinquent boys up in the hills of New Hampshire. And I slipped on a place where the road was covered with snow, a patch of ice. And I stepped on it and I went down on my back and I hit my head, although I didn't knock myself out. 300 pounds, by the way, is approximately what a refrigerator weighs. So picture a refrigerator falling down on its back. And I sort of half knocked myself, not unconscious, but I think I knocked myself conscious. It was like I knocked myself out of my usual conception of myself. And for about two minutes, I had a mystical experience that changed my entire life. It was as if for those two minutes, I was out of my usual way of seeing myself. And I I could see down through all these levels of myself that I'd never Mm -hmm. seen before. I could see this level of old anger in me that I'd never Mm -hmm. tuned into and a layer of sadness about my father dying and some other things and a layer of fear. It was like, I could feel all the way down through my body, all these things that I'd never realized before were driving me actually unconsciously. Mm -hmm. But the magic was, after I felt the anger and the fear and the sadness and all that, I felt this other thing that I call pure consciousness, which Mm -hmm. is just pure being. You know, imagine your consciousness without any thoughts or feelings or anything like that, just the pure stuff itself. And I could feel that we all have that. And that most of us just stay so tied up in our own story about ourselves that we don't get to feel that deep being. And so for that two minutes, I could feel that. And it really changed my life because I realized that that's who we really are. You know, we're not our history. Just because I was born a certain way with a certain physiology didn't mean that I had to keep that physiology. Even though medicine hadn't fixed it, I decided to fix it myself. And so Guess what I did for the next year? You tried to trip and recreate the experience. <laughs> kept falling down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> kept hanging out on ice. <laughs> what I did was I started making each little decision, even what to eat, based on will it make me feel more of that pure consciousness or will it cover up that pure consciousness? Mm. And I found that pretty much everything I'd been eating covered that up, you know? And so I had to start eating completely different things. So over the next year, I ate things that I'd never eaten before. Concepts like vegetables, (laughs) fruit, (laughs) you know? For me, before the big experience, you know, my favorite meal would have been a cheeseburger, fries, and a vanilla malt. That would have been basically the Mm -hmm. peak of my diet (laughs) right there. And every meal had to have meat in it, that kind of thing. And so no wonder I was 300 pounds, but I lost 100 pounds over the course of a year, and I think I really found my life during that year because I realized that I wanted to spend my time on earth teaching people how to do that without falling down on the ice, Mm. you know, that it was unnecessary. It was necessary for me because I'd boxed myself in so much that I needed a big wake-up call. I always say, we we teach our students that the universe is happy to teach you by tickling with you, tickling you with a feather. It's also totally happy to smash you over the head with a mallet if you're not paying attention to the tickling of the feather. 
and I've had lots of experiences where I get the little feather tickle and I don't pay attention to it, you know, but uh, I'm very grateful for that experience because it turned everything around. Within a year or two, I'd quit all the addictions, quit smoking and gotten out of the toxic relationship. I don't think I trusted myself to be in a good relationship for like the next seven years or so. I was single because I, I was still trying to kind of find out who I was in there. I had relationships, but they were all sort of short-termed until I met Katie in 1980. And then that was, that was it for me. Mm. Once I saw her, I saw, okay, it's all over. <laughs> mm. That's so beautiful. It's, it's funny. I had a similar experience where I got out of a relationship that really wasn't aligned and for me and then was single for about seven years, which kind of felt like a proper cycle that I really needed to walk back and remember who I was, yeah. you know, on that level. You mentioned the element of what you were putting in your body and consuming was kind of covering up you feeling and realizing who you really were. What were other aspects of whether it was your lifestyle or just the way you were outside of food that you realized was covering up who yeah. you really were? Well, I realized that I learned certain toxic patterns growing up. You know, one of which was when I got feeling lonely or in some kind of a fear state, I realized I would overeat to drown that feeling out. But in one way or other, I did that in every era of my life, not just food. You know, if I felt sad, I would light a cigarette. And everything was designed, I think, to cover up. I think that was the context of my life, was to keep myself from getting revealed inside, yeah. to keep it all inside. And that was the way I was programmed. I grew up in the Deep South in a town of 10,000 people, so there weren't any things like psychiatrists, psychologists, or self-help books back there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was about 10 churches, but that was about it. You mm -hmm. know? And now you can have psychology classes and mm -hmm. read self-help books. But in those days, I had to kind of figure it out for myself. There wasn't any self-help books or anything. And I'm glad I did because... I really learned a lot that I don't think I could have learned just out of a book because mm -hmm. I had to figure out what it would take every day to lose 100 pounds. And so now that gives me an unshakable belief that human beings can transform themselves no matter where they are. Yes. Yeah. yeah, with the experience of that mystical, beautiful touching of consciousness, it's so powerful because we talked to Byron Katie recently as well. And her experience was a little like that, where she had a moment of being in pure consciousness. A cockroach mm -hmm. walked over her foot. She was homeless at the time and experienced that bliss. How did that moment affect your connection with source or God? Did you have a relationship before that? Not really. I think that was my first connection. I'd grown up in the Christian church in the South, Protestant church in the South, but they didn't have much to say about those kind of mystical mm -hmm. experiences. It was all about believing in Jesus and that kind of thing. And so this was something way, way, way down inside me, though, that was, um, I, I guess I'd been exposed to religious teaching and everything, but it had kind of bounced off me in a way because I was heavily intellectual at the time. Even psychology. I remember taking a psychology class in college. And, you know, why do I want to train a rat? You know, <laughs> what, is it, what do I have to learn from a rat? Here, mm -hmm. you know? And now looking back on it, I guess it's an important part of the process. But most of the stuff they were trying to teach us, I felt was irrelevant to mm -hmm. life itself. That's why after I got my doctorate at Stanford in 1974, I went out to Colorado to become a professor there in the counseling psychology department. 
And when I looked at what they were making me teach in the first couple of years, I was really disenchanted, you know, because like all the graduate students had to take a couple of statistics courses. And I can tell you just flat out, there is absolutely about 1% of statistics is useful mm -hmm. for a clinical person, a person who's mm -hmm. a healer, a person who's a life coach or something like that. It's nice to know about 1% of it. But we made these poor students spend a year mm -hmm. you know, grinding wow. their way through all these. And there was less emphasis given to one-on-one -on -one work with people. You know, we had that, certainly. We had our practicum classes and things mm -hmm. like that. But there was all this other chaff. But I really enjoyed university teaching uh, until one magic day. I wrote a book, Katie and I wrote Conscious Loving, and an up-and-coming young talk show host, mm -hmm. Oprah, <laughs> called us and said, hey, you want to come on my new talk show? Mm -hmm. We flew out to Chicago, and like I always say, one night we were working with six couples in our living room. The next day we were working with 10 million people on the stage at Oprah. Yeah, what was that like to bring your work to the masses so suddenly? Was there a shift in how you taught or how you experienced your work or... I can imagine that's like kind of a trippy thing. It is a very trippy thing. I had to learn, you know, as a university professor or as a speaker, people would ask me a question and I would go through the detail of it because they were clinical people who were interested in learning how to be counseling psychologists or life coaches or school counselors and that kind of thing. They were all interested in that. But you go on stage at Oprah and first of all, it's about two or three times the size of the normal talk show audience. Most talk shows have about 50 people in the audience, but they're shot so that they look like 150 mm -hmm. people. Oprah actually has 150 people. Wow. So you go out there in this huge crowd, and it's like the Roman Empire, you know, or the lions or the Christians winning because they can go up and down. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fortunately, I said a one-liner sort of right in the beginning of things that got the audience screaming and mm -hmm. clapping. And so from then on, they were on our side. But What was that one-liner? You remember? Oh, you know, it was something like we were working with a couple, and I said something just sort of corny and traditional, like that's what always gets something, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, I, I said, I want you to promise me that you're not going to use your kids as pawns in this oh. situation, keep it between you. And the audience, <laughs> you know, they love that. I, <laughs> when I said it, it didn't occur to yeah. me that I was about to revolutionize the, the way people <laughs> fought. You were about to win them over. Y'all never forget the one woman who went on Oprah years ago, and she was speaking about filling your own cup up first before your children. She's like, put yourself first, love yourself first. Self-love is really important. And the audience was like, boo. Mm. Yeah, put your kids first. And it's fascinating because I can't imagine Oprah's audience having that sort of live reaction <laughs> response. I kind of didn't think about that with the Oprah audience, that they were that active. But Conscious Loving is a book that I read this year and it's so mm. powerful. I'm so grateful mm. that you and Katie both wrote it. Mm. I actually brought it to our membership. A lot of our members are reading it as well. But I want to talk about Conscious Loving and maybe the inspiration behind it because it's such a unique perspective on relationships. Yes. Well, Katie and I wrote that in 1988, mm -hmm. I think. And we'd been working with couples throughout the 80s. And we lived in Colorado at the time. And there was this one night where we were sitting in front of the fireplace after one of our group meetings where we've been working with six couples in our living room. That's about all it could hold. And we were sitting in front of the fireplace. And all of a sudden, we looked at each other and we said, we've got to take this out. So this stuff is so good, you know, because we were talking about how to communicate authentically and how to take responsibility and how to keep your creativity juicy and 
all those kind of things that nobody else was talking about at the time. So I just got busy and I'm the main writer in the family and Katie comes along and edits and contributes mm -hmm. examples and things like that. So I spent a sweaty six months writing Conscious Loving and we struck up a connection with a really great agent at the time named Sandy Dykstra. And it was one hop to Oprah after the book came out. So that, that really changed everything. And we were on there other times, but that first one, we went from being university professors selling about 10,000 books a month to whatever you are after you're on Oprah selling mm -hmm. 10,000 books an hour. And wow. so it really changed our lives profoundly. Wow. In your small groups, in your living room, what were you, as a catalyst for the book, what were you seeing as common themes within relationships that sparked some of the very tangible concepts that people can be working on through conscious loving? One of the big problems that people in relationships have to somehow get through is that almost every relationship argument is a race to occupy the victim position. Mm -hmm. One person says, you're doing it to me. And then the other person doesn't say, you know, you're right, I am doing it to you. you know, they say, no, wait a minute, you're doing it to me. <laughs> yeah. And you even see that in mm -hmm. politics. Yes. You very seldom see a politician say, I take responsibility for the way things are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always the other people are responsible. Mm -hmm. If they would only vote for me. But it's all BS. You yeah. know it's all BS. And um, because the only genuine transformation has to start from within. And something has to... You have to have a crisis in your life sometimes or something, a catastrophic failure of an expectation where you thought you were with the love of your life and all of a sudden you realized, wait a minute, I'm in a toxic old pattern. The fact that this person looks good is a problem, not a solution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. that happens a lot. That happened to me a lot during my 20s. Mm -hmm. I was 34 when I met Katie and I had just had a big breakup taught me a lot. And I came to the conclusion after this breakup that all of our problems were caused by one of three things. One is one of us wouldn't tell the truth to the other one about something. And then that concealed thing, whatever it was, something you did or something you felt or something you didn't feel like you could share with the other person, you keep that inside. And then you begin to project onto the other person. In the book, we call it withhold, withdraw, and project. Mm -hmm. As soon as you swallow something true, you mm -hmm. pull back from the relationship, and then you begin to project onto that person that they're not safe, or there's something wrong with them, or they're not treating you properly. But we started taking full responsibility for that. Instead of blaming anything on the other person, we just assumed that we were the source of whatever the glitch was. And both of us were doing that. And so we both took responsibility. That was the second thing that we learned that if we could go from that blame move to going, hmm, what was my contribution to that mm -hmm. conflict? Hmm, how did I cause that? Hmm, what is it about my programming that made it inevitable that my partner would do dot, 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 whatever they did? So it's taking radical responsibility. And like, I said, in politics, you never see that. You know, you see one politician after the other just whining about whatever they're whining about and blaming it on the other people. So we're big advocates for speaking authentically and taking responsibility for things that come up rather than blaming the other person. 
The third thing that couples really suffer from is both people come into a relationship being two hundred percent responsible people, and then they start racing to occupy the victim position and pretending they're not a hundred percent responsible yeah. and blaming it on the other person. Well, there's only one way out of that, and that's to claim the responsibility for it. And at the same time, what you do when you do that is you open up a direct pipeline to your creativity. Because if you think about it, if you're saying, it's your fault, it's your fault, you're doing it to me, Mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're disowning all of your creativity and putting it on the other person. You're saying, I had nothing to do with creating that. It's Mm -hmm. your problem. And that burns up a lot of energy Mm. in relationship. I know I did back in my Mm -hmm. 20s. And literally the month before I met Katie, I had this big realization. I realized that every problem was either caused by I didn't tell the truth about something or I didn't take responsibility for something and I blamed her for it. And the third one was I blamed her for not having enough time to spend on my creative projects. Mm. So in other words, out of my lack of commitment to my creativity, I blame the other person. Mm. And that's why in a relationship, you really have to keep your attention on your own creative process because that gets lost a lot of times in the drama that's caused by the race for the victim position. Mm. I am juggling quite a bit lately. I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, If you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. (laughs) Shervine has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, So let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, So I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus, and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. It's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste amazing unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time 
right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide. Yeah. I love how you use the word creativity and creating the way where you're creating the situation. If you're not taking creative responsibility for even creating conflict, that's also creativity. So I really love that. One of the most powerful parts of the book for me was talking about how the potential for closeness is what makes relationships hard and how sometimes when we get so close to intimacy, that's when things get really hard because we have that opportunity to heal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, go back to the first year of life. In the first year of life, you have the first six months, which is all about nurturing and learning to trust and receiving. The second six months of life, though, you begin to crawl around. You begin to explore. It's a whole different world then. And if you think about it, translate that to the rest of your life. We're always in a process of either getting close or getting individual, getting close, individuating. Mm unifying, individuating. We go back and forth between those two things all of our lives. And the idea in adult relationships is to see them as a process of deepening intimacy and to look at whatever comes up as a barrier to that. And then to talk about that lovingly or lovingly look into it in yourself. But what a lot of people do when those barriers start coming up they blame it on the other person and they lose the learning potential. That's the reason you can have people go through three or four different relationships, have the same pattern happen, and the person doesn't learn it. Mm. I remember, I call it the greatest one-liner I've ever heard in my entire therapy practice. I saw my first client in 1968 and I saw my latest one yesterday. So I'm still engaged in the process of helping people. I only work with two or three people a week now, but in those way early days, I had a whole school full of delinquents that I was trying to. (laughs) (laughs) You loved them, though. We love our little delinquents. (laughs) I love them. They were very interesting characters to work with. I remember one 14-year-old who saw a police car pulled up in front of a donut shop, saw that the police car's door was open and the two policemen were up at the counter he decided to get in the police car and drive it off, forgetting that he had never driven a car in his life. And he made it about six blocks before he drove the car through the window of a department store. But here's the key thing. On Monday, I'm working with him, and I say, you know, like, why did you do it? Why did you, of all the possible things you could have done, why did you do that thing? And he said, well, the door was open. (laughs) okay well go at it a little bit deeper and he said well i knew they had insurance wow you know so that was the kind of thinking that was very popular in the school that i taught at that's why these kids had been sent there from all Mm -hmm. sorts of places Mm -hmm. but anyway back to the greatest one-liner when i was in my 30s i was working with a guy who was also in his 30s i lived in colorado at the time and he came in and uh, first session And I said, you know, what's on your mind? And he said, well, I'm 30-something years old. He said, since I was 17 years old, I've been through more than a dozen relationships, and they all lasted about six months, and then they all fell apart. 
Then he said, my favorite line, he said, I'm beginning to wonder if it has something to do with me. (laughs) This had happened like (laughs) 12 or 15 times, you know? So sometimes as human beings, our learning curve is very slow before we say, hmm, what does this have to do with me? It was so simple once he just opened up that question, though, because it was a classic situation. When he was six months old, he was Mm -hmm. the youngest of four brothers. His mother ran off with another man and never appeared again in his life. Mm. So he didn't know who she was, but his father kept up this running dialogue. You can't trust women. Women will cheat on you. Women are evil. Just kept this dialogue up throughout my client's life. And I don't know what happened to the other three sons, but this guy had created one relationship Mm. mess after another, and they all had that six-month kind of a thing to them. Now, isn't it amazing that the human consciousness as an unconscious entity can manifest Mm -hmm. that over and over again? Mm -hmm. All we have to do is turn that around and use that same manifestation power to create things we want, Mm -hmm. to create things that are good for us, you know, things that are good for us to eat, people that are good for us to love. In my 20s, I had what I called a very damaged picker. I picked people in relationships that usually had addictions of some Mm. sort that I didn't know about, you know, and I grew up in a family where there was a lot of secret addictions. I didn't realize the effect that that Mm -hmm. had on me till later. It seemed to invite into my life one woman after the other that was either a secret drinker or a secret smoker. The one Mm -hmm. I was with before I uh, had that breakup, before I met Katie, was into Valium. And I didn't really discover it because I'd never taken Valium. And I didn't realize there was these times of the day when she felt a little not there, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it was different. I noticed it. It's just like a person who doesn't drink probably would notice a person who drank a very, even a small amount. But things like that, I realized eventually that was because I had a bad picker. I picked people mm-hmm. who had those problems to fit my programming. And so that's one thing that anybody in their 20s and early 30s really needs to look at is, what's my basic program regarding who do I select? Who do I pick? What kind of person do I go for? Do I go for a person who enhances my evolution or one that slows down my evolution? If you are talking to couples, I'm curious like how you snap them out of the victim loop. Mm-hmm. What questions can people ask themselves, maybe ask their partner to bring to light this power of taking responsibility? One really good question is, how is this familiar? Ask the person, Mm -hmm. how is this familiar? Because that forces them to say, have I done this sort of thing before? Mm -hmm. And most people, if they're honest, will realize that they're not on their fourth or fifth repetition of a pattern. They're on their about 58th repetition of it. So that's a great question. How is this Mm -hmm. familiar to you? Another question we ask is, where and how did you start seeing the world that way? Because oftentimes that takes them beyond the current relationship. Mm -hmm. Many people come in, in the early stages of working on their relationship, and they really do think they've invented those patterns. They don't realize that other people have had those same patterns, thousands, millions of people, and have found their way through it. When you're stuck in the middle of a pattern, you don't realize you're stuck in the middle of a pattern. 
Like one of the common patterns is, I'll use gender language here because it's often 90% men that have this issue. <laughs> He's extremely logical and she's extremely feelingful. Mm -hmm. And they get into hassles trying to make each other the way they are. He wants to make her a little more logical. So she sometimes remembers where she puts her car keys. <laughs> and she wants to make him a little more feelingful so that he doesn't go authoritarian with the kids mm. or can share when he's scared and things like that, which is often very hard for men to do. It can work the other way. I've seen situations where there's an extremely logical woman and an extremely feelingful man, but you know, there are certain things that break down gender-wise. How would you know within a relationship that this is an opportunity for us to get more intimate? This is an opportunity for closeness. This is why it feels so sticky. This is why it feels so hard. Or if something's unaligned. Really great question. We're going to have to go kind of deep for that one because but that gets deep. into some <laughs> very deep stuff. Understand that fear mm -hmm. is a big player in any kind of relationship conflict that people get stuck at the level of anger, but don't get down to the level of hurt and down to the level of fear, what I'm scared of. When I can get a couple to look each other in the eye and tell each other what they're scared about, mm. we're on our way to resolving the problem. It does no good to sit there and have them yelling at each other with anger. They've done that mm. all the way over in the car. Mm. You want to help them get further down the parfait of feelings to what they're hurt about and what they're mm. scared about. What happens in a relationship is you get closer to another person and then a fear comes up. And that fear, there are not very many of them, but one of them is the fear that I talk about in The Big Leap that many people feel there's something fundamentally flawed about them. There's something fundamentally wrong about them. They never had the self-esteem to take on that issue about learning to love themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, the issue that the person doesn't love in themselves becomes the very issue that gets projected into the relationship mm -hmm. and projected onto the other person. So when we can get a person down into feeling what they're afraid of and loving themselves for those deep old fears that we carry around, that's an evolutionary move because that takes person out of the anger, the kind of the infinite anger mm -hmm. loop and gets them down underneath it. We have a guy on one of our websites that sells one of our e-courses. He says, changing one word changed my marriage. And what we taught him was how to say, I'm scared, mm -hmm. instead of saying, I'm mad at you. Yeah. Or why did you do that? Yeah. We just had him trained to say, I'm afraid that we're not going to get there on time yeah. rather than you're running late yeah. or why are you mm. late all the time? Yeah. yeah, It makes a big difference when you communicate from inside. There's no threat based on it. When mm. you communicate something that's unarguable. Mm -hmm. So if I say to you, I'm scared of you, nobody ever says back, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, if it, they're gaslighting you, well, <laughs> they might. You know, like, <laughs> there's it, that. <laughs> it doesn't happen in the office very much when yeah. I get people down to that level. So in one way or the other, we're all going to have to face what I call in the big leap, the upper limit problem, yes. which you get close and then fear comes up either over here or over there or most of the time with both of us. Mm -hmm. And then we push back from that and blame it on the other person. Mm 
mm-hmm. rather than saying, oh, I have an upper limit coming up of how close I can mm-hmm. feel to you. Do you feel anything like that? And then the other person says, yeah, I feel that same thing. And then you can deal with it as something that you're both feeling rather than what we call the drama triangle around here, which is one person digs in on the victim position and says, I'm the victim. You're the perpetrator. The other person says, no, I'm not the perpetrator. You're the perpetrator. And then the hero steps in. One of them steps in and says, oh, let's go out for ice cream. And let's stop the argument by doing Mm -hmm. something artificial like that rather than going through it. Wow. Mm. The big leap was a very profound read for me during, um, it was in my Saturn return, but around relationships where I felt as though I would hit my upper limit, turn right around and just go back into a comfort zone of sorts, which looked like dating people who didn't really call me to my highest self, who allowed me to just, yeah, just be. And I looked really good in comparison to them because they were not showing up in a way that was in integrity and respectful. So it was just a profound shift for me to realize that's what was happening in these moments. But can you give an example of an upper limit that you were meeting and which helped to crystallize this concept? The first one that really I can think of that changed my relationship with Katie. About a year into our relationship, we, there was this one moment where she came home after work. Her studio where she did her dance therapy was out on the other end of town. And she came home and she was late, maybe 45 minutes late. This was in the days before cell phones. So I was worried. Yeah about her and because it was snowy and all that. And finally, she she got there and she'd stopped for groceries. But when she came in the door, I automatically defaulted to criticizing her. Mm-hmm. Now, where have you been? You know, I was expecting you. You said you'd be home at 7.30. But something about the tone of my voice, I realized, oh, I sound irritated or angry and I'm bragging on her, criticizing her. But what I feel in my belly is fear. Mm. That was a huge moment for me because I remember I was standing there on the stairs talking to her and she was by the door. And I said, oh, I'm scared about something. She said, what? And I said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. Mm. And she said something like, well, why would you be criticizing me if you're afraid of losing And it became clear to me in that moment, I realized criticizing her was my way of pushing her away Mm -hmm. so I didn't have to confront that old fear in Mm. me. But instead of running away from it, I just stood there and breathed with it and talked to her and we ended up in tears and I was telling her, you know, how I wasn't used to being that close to anybody and I just didn't feel like I deserved it. And so I would get scared and push her away. So once we stopped doing that, our relationship really took off in a big way because then we were aware of that. For a couple of years there, we would catch each other in the middle of an upper limit problem long before I started to write about it. And we would call it an ULP, U-L-P, upper limit problem. ULP. (laughs) I just had an ULP. But what you have to do is consciousness is really your major disinfectant (laughs) of your toxic Mm -hmm. psyche. You have to keep being aware of these patterns that you find yourself in 
And above all, you have to keep going down inside and saying, hmm, what am I hurt about? What am I sad about? What am I scared about? That's the kind of dialogue you have to have from down inside. It's heart-to-heart talk that really helps you get through those impasses. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's so beautiful to see your example. And then in my mind, I'm seeing the other alternative that most people would do, which is even maybe feeling the feeling and continuing to criticize because they're fearful of allowing the opportunity. For anyone that doesn't know what an upper limit problem is, can you explain it? Yes. It's your tendency to sabotage yourself when things are going well. You get a raise at work, hey, then you go home and have a fight that night and knock the good feeling out of your body. Or the other way around, you have a wonderful time over the weekend with your family or your partner, and then you come into work on Monday and get into a big blow up there. So it's the inability to let yourself feel good for any length of time, the inability to let yourself have a good flow of connection in the relationship Mm -hmm. without blowing it up. So that's the upper limit problem. Mm -hmm. I noticed too, when the upper limit problem, I sort of saw it before I had the contextualization of thinking of it as an upper limit problem, as like a vibrational thing. I was like, oh, my vibration is raised and there's like a incongruency between the vibrations. And so we're trying to figure out which vibration is going to win. And sometimes it was like the lower vibration. And so it would be a fight or something would happen. That's a really good way to put it, I think. That yeah. it, it is a vibrational thing yeah. because long before language came along, yeah. human beings were communicating with each other yeah. vibrationally. And I read a lot of anthropology. I enjoy anthropology studies. And there's a tribe of people in the desert in South Africa, a tribe of Bushmen, that are so sensitive to the movement of game animals that they can feel the movement of buffalo, for example. They can feel the movement nine miles away. And they say they can feel it in the calves of their legs. They've gotten so sensitive to being on the ground that they can feel buffalo moving nine miles away and know where to go to hunt their hunter-gatherers. And, you know, if human beings can do that, imagine what we're able to be sensitive about. Mm -hmm. Human beings, I think, used to probably be more telepathic than we are now because it was required. You know, you had to kind of be more sensitive. Now -hmm. you can pick up the cell phone and say, hey, how you doing? Or text back and forth or something. But it takes some practice to really be able to tune into another person. Mm -hmm. And your ability to do that is completely affected by your ability to do that yourself, your ability to do that in your own body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think because of technological advances, Mm -hmm. 5G, whatever, there's so much that the sensitive body is picking up Mm -hmm. on that it's just easier to protect and maybe shut down parts of those sensitivities because there's so much Mm -hmm. stimuli. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. With the upper limit problem too, that's also kind of like a Jungian concept around, like Carl Jung, around self-sabotage. And I think a lot of people experience self-sabotage in their life where they think something good's about to happen and the upper limit problem happens. Do you feel like this is something that's generational or do you feel like it's cultural or how do you see this sort of playing out among generations and cultures? That's a really good question. I think there's generational aspects and probably cultural aspects of it too. I just had a memory of somebody This is a good example. I had a working with a woman who, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, but she just had a big fear of speaking in public. If you and I were sitting here too, you'd think she was genius level, Mm -hmm. the way she would discuss things, but she just couldn't get up there in front of a microphone. So we worked out a deal where she went to 
Toastmasters, which mm-hmm. is, you know, how that works, where you get up and give a little speech every time. And it worked wonders for her. And so in about six months, mm. she was ready to give her big speech. And she was going to give a speech to a new group, not just the Toastmasters group, but it was one of these groups like the Lions Club or something like that. The morning of the speech, she got a real sore throat wow. and laryngitis and couldn't talk. Fortunately, she had a good coach standing by <laughs> who convinced her to regard that as an upper limit problem. Wow. And why would you be dialing up a sore throat of all days today? As soon as she got out of the drama of the sore throat and thinking it had to do with her throat, she realized, oh my God, somehow my unconscious just dialed that up. 30 minutes later, where was the laryngitis? You couldn't tell. It was gone. And so coming out from that old place of fear, every upper limit problem is run out of fear. And once you get down in there and say, okay, what am I really afraid of? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm afraid of letting my full magnificence shine in the world. Because when I did that when I was a kid, it didn't work very well. I got slapped down for it. But that's one of the big fears is the fear of outshining other people. I'm afraid to really shine for fear that'll take the shine away from other people. That fear I mentioned earlier is so endemic. People have that fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. It gets into what I think a lot of people call imposter syndrome, where they don't feel like they're the right person. They don't feel like they're who they are. I actually had a guy, we used to have a place over on the beach in Carpinteria before we moved over here to Ojai 21 years ago. And one of my neighbors up the beach was a famous musician. And we struck up a conversation over the years. And he called me one day. He was in the middle of an anxiety attack. And could he come over and could I help him through it? It turned out that he was going to get his handprint in the Walk of Fame the next day in Hollywood. And why would that trigger an anxiety attack. Just think about it for a second. Mm. If you were going to get your handprints tomorrow in the Hollywood walking free, and you had a big wave of anxiety that was making you say, I don't think I'm going to go down. They can do it without me, which was crazy, you know, because of all the press and everything like that, that gathers around. Plus the guy's celebrating. He's had hits in four or five different decades. Mm. So why not let yourself be celebrated? But you know what it was? Down at the bottom of that was that fear that I'm fundamentally flawed. Mm. I'm fundamentally wrong. I don't deserve Mm -hmm. this. And I want all your listeners and everybody in the world to know that whether you deserve something or not is totally irrelevant. Get that thought out of your head. Mm -hmm. Because by asking yourself constantly, do I deserve the good things in the world? Do I deserve love? Do I deserve wealth? That kind of thing. You keep yourself trapped in that cycle of fear, and there's only one way out of it, and that's to ah, acknowledge Mm. it and then move beyond it, and that's a tricky thing to do. Sometimes it takes a long time to get to the place where you have that first big, ah, okay, I'm scared, and I'm going to do it anyway. Yes. Yeah, and it's those moments that I've felt in my own life have been just the most expansive moments where I can now hold a little bit more Mm -hmm. of the good, of that good feeling. Because there is a little bit of that programming I had to work with where not necessarily that I truly on a soul level believed that I couldn't feel good all the time, but I didn't see it growing up. 
I saw kind of the struggle, the sacrifice, the got to go through pain and the hardship in order to get to where you want to go. So I never thought it was possible, but I knew that that wasn't like my deep truth. But I think over time, the ability to hold it was something that was so interesting for me. And I also had to work on a physical level to hold it. Oh, it is a physical thing because your body is where you feel your feelings. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you mentioning that because it is a process of gradually accustoming yourself to more and more good feeling, more and more days Mm -hmm. going well, Mm -hmm. more and more of that flow of connection Mm -hmm. between you and your partner. Mm -hmm. That's the nervous system. Yeah, you have to culture your nervous system to allow more positive energy in. Yep. Yeah, it's really important for attunement in relationships and being attuned. And even you with the example of you on the stairs, you know, having the experience where you're criticizing Katie, but then having the feeling in your belly of fear. Yeah. Being able to pull up out of the head and into the somatic part of the body is so important. Yeah, I don't think you can really get there unless you find a way of working with your body Mm -hmm. through meditation or through breath work or whatever your path is, it needs to involve things that make you more sensitive to what's going on inside yourself. Mm -hmm. The answers are all there. There's no mystery. Mm -hmm. It's just that you need to take a moment to tune in and say, okay, what am I honestly afraid of? And Mm -hmm. the answers are not hard to get. Is every negative emotion like the base of it some fear? Look at the way the body is layered up. Fear down in the Mm -hmm. belly. Mm -hmm. Sadness up here. Anger. Jaws, Mm. shoulders, back of the neck. Mm -hmm. Your body is a parfait with fear being down at the center of the root chakra. Yeah, Uh, that makes sense from a like a chakra Mm -hmm. perspective too. Because if we're at the root, kind of moving the voice, anger, moving up. And once you get past from a spiritual perspective, they say from the throat, you don't have any of those negative emotions. It's like then like enlightenment connection. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, these are the ones that really get a grip on you. Yeah, you know, and you can feel them physically. Sure. Oh, definitely, you feel them physically, yeah. and um, that's an important part of the process too yeah. to let yourself. Because also, unless you feel the top three feelings in the parfait—anger, sadness, and fear—you don't get to be able to feel the delicious reward at the end of it, which is down at the very center of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are this pure consciousness, mm-hmm. and. That's who we really are. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you can be scared or angry or sad, and that's still there all the time. Mm -hmm. That's what I want people to identify with. Mm. And then your other work is the genius zone, which is so interesting because I've been acclimated to the work outside of knowing it was part of the genius zone, zone of genius. You know, we were just talking about it earlier today. What was your inspiration for that? And I think, especially for our audience, a lot of people are either entrepreneurs or they are in the corporate world, maybe want to do something on their own. So creativity and really finding that zone of genius is so important. So what was the inspiration and how can people find their zone of genius? You begin with sincere questions, sincere what I call wonder questions. A wonder question is an important tool for consciousness because when you ask a wonder question, you're asking something you really don't know and you would really like to know. If you ask yourself, hmm, what is it that causes me to not have harmony in my relationships? What is it that I'm really scared about? It's that moment of genuine wonder. Hmm, hmm, what are you actually wondering about? And the act of wonder is a front door to the universe. Mm -hmm. The moment you Mm -hmm. wonder, you're in the space of creativity. 
you're not pretending you're not. Mm-hmm. You're not pretending you don't know. You're not mad because you don't know. You're in a moment of sincere wonder. And that invites all sorts of new creative energy to flow through you. Mm-hmm. I started working with the whole genius zone concept. I got the privilege of working with some really amazing entrepreneurs. One was Michael Dell at Dell Computer. Mm-hmm. And I don't I, know him. I went down there a lot back during the 90s when Dell was in a period of explosive growth. And I went down to do a lot of consulting with his top team, he and the other two people, Kevin and Mort, that were the top team at the time. And I got to watch, like with Michael Dell, you see a mind like that about every hundred years, probably. He was so able to get out from behind his emotions and just see things clearly. And it wasn't because he was denying his emotions or anything. It was just like, oh, yeah, I'm scared or I'm angry or I'm sad. It was once he acknowledged it, he was so clear about being able to see the future and see what was going on and that kind of thing. So I started thinking that these folks were operating in a zone that I call genius, which is where they were doing what they love to do And they were doing something that made a huge contribution to other people's lives. Mm. That, to me, is the pure definition of genius. When you're doing what you most love to do, and you're doing something that makes a contribution. Like what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. You're obviously in your genius zone right now, both of you. And you're doing something you love to do, I can tell by the look on your face. (laughs) And you're doing something that makes a tremendous contribution to other people's lives. As long as you keep aiming your activities in that direction, I predict that you will have abundance and success beyond your wildest dreams. I just started focusing on that way back in the 80s. I started asking myself, how much time did I spend today on my own genius? 10% of my time? Yuck. So I started trying to beef that up first to 30% and then to 50%. Pretty soon, I was spending more than half my time in my genius zone, Mm -hmm. doing stuff I love to do and stuff that made a contribution. I had to get through a lot of stuff in my zone of incompetence and my zone of competence and ultimately my zone of excellence. Your zone of excellence is going to be your big stopper because that's very alluring. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants you to stay there. Everybody Mm -hmm. likes you to be relied upon. Everybody wants you to be the rainmaker and all that. And I cannot count. Gosh, I bet I have 400 people in my office over the years who told me some version of, you know, they'd be about 40 years old and they'll say, I'm doing great. I'm making plenty of money. I'm advancing my career. My partner loves flying first class and everything, but I feel if I keep going like this, I'm going to kill myself, Mm -hmm. you know, because they've learned that particular drive style Mm -hmm. and the personality that gets you to age 40 is not the personality that's going to get you from 40 to 80. Mm -hmm. Because if you used all that drive to get to 40, your body's going to give you feedback pretty soon that mm-hmm. you need to manifest a different way after midlife. And that is by receiving mm-hmm. more than pushing, yeah. letting yourself mm-hmm. receive, opening up your receptor sites consciously to more abundance and more good feeling. Those are more important at a certain point. It's important to, to work and show up diligently and that kind of thing. But you need to learn to work smart rather than hard because hard work is no fun, and it has a deleterious effect on the human being. Yes. Yeah, it's almost like the zone of genius is like the soul, 
and the receiving, because it's a lot, you're in tune. Like it's a lot with the channel. You receiving the information, you receiving the gifts. It might not make sense to everyone. Your zone of genius might not make sense for everyone, but the zone of excellence is really the pushing. And it's really more of the ego because oftentimes it is when people are in jobs or positions where they're being rewarded from a material level or from an egoic level for what they're doing. And then they're like, well, I'm good at it. It's easy. People get stuck there and they don't trust enough in God or source or creator to be in that zone of genius to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly how I see it. How did you figure out this much by your relatively young age? Has this been something Mm -hmm. that's been a driver for you since you were a kid? Or how did you get so enlightened at such an early age? Reading books like this. (laughs) (laughs) Reading, Reading your books for sure. I think I've always been someone that question. The way I listen is so deep. So I'm listening and I'm like computing in my head. And then I'm sort of making my own picture of what's going on in a way that I can really understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like everyone here is incredibly sensitive, but I'm picking up on much more than what's happening. And so it was always an interest to me to explore that and more fully express myself beyond just words To This is obviously words and conversation, but I think part of what we do is energetic and an expression of really embodying, yeah, a life that feels creative, feels fulfilling. And that's always been a very deep desire of mine, regardless of the end goal, the prize, the money, the fame, the recognition. I've always had that drive to do what feels really good. And so that's why the Genius Zone has been so um, impactful because, and it's tracked like our progression a little bit with Almost 30, where we started literally in our closets mm-hmm. on the floor, just mm-hmm. recording like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. And I think that was our genius. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a business, mm-hmm. which is so beautiful. It becomes a community. It becomes a global brand. And within that, you step in to be in your excellence in so many ways. And because it becomes this like living, breathing thing, you feel like you have to keep doing all of those things. And so it's been important for us to communicate about, this is my zone of genius. This is your zone of genius. Let's do more of that. Mm -hmm. And what's not feeling so great? Can we hire someone to do that who's in their zone of genius? Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's been really helpful to build a team Mm -hmm. and become like a sustainable entity. Mm -hmm. I noticed myself getting caught up in the ego illusion of the zone of excellence a lot within our business because I'll be like, it makes me feel worthy of it. If something's happening, say we just had a transition on our team. So now I'm doing finance, which I don't normally do, but I'm doing it. And there's that part of me that's like, well, this means that I'm earning my keep. And this means that I'm worthy of what I'm doing. And there's almost that, obviously that I'm working on where I see myself being like, okay, I'm going to do this. And there's a part of me that feels good about doing it. Even though I know it's not my zone of genius. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of that my upper limit around that too, where it's like, what if I let go and was only in my zone of genius? I'd be like, Kanye West. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a big cheerleader for as soon as possible, fully letting yourself go. I'm going to let it rip. Mm -hmm. Always living in your zone of genius. Just make the money rain wherever Yeah, honestly, just (laughs) literally no invoices are sent. (laughs) This has been such a pleasure, and I'm just so grateful that we could be here. I would love, just as a last question, is there anything on your heart or mind that you're wanting to share 
that you're feeling really called or you're feeling really inspired by in these moments or times? Recently, I've been thinking a lot about the art of receiving. Mm -hmm. I don't plan to write a book about it, but I'm planning to. Katie's like, we'll see. (laughs) Uh, I have a big thing coming up in a big one-day event that I'm teaching. One of the themes of it is about the art of receiving, you know, how you go about opening your receptor sites. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's such an important thing because many people have been programmed to think that the way through life is by doing, doing, doing. And it's important, but it's important to have also build into the cycle of receiving. Mm -hmm. So you're not just putting out, putting out, putting out. You're also welcoming your ability to receive more. And the interesting thing is, you can work on it purely on this end in the sense that the more you open your receptor sites to receiving, all sorts of things start popping up around you all the time. There's a great quote from Franz Kafka who said that you don't need to do anything. Be very still and ordinary. Just sit and listen. The universe will roll in ecstasy at your feet. It has no choice. So if you create that place of stillness and receptivity, you can never predict what's going to happen, but what I've seen so far is pure magic. Mm. Oh. Mm. Well, you have to let us know about that event so we can tell our community. I would mm-hmm. love that. I know you're going to write a book on it. I know there's going to be a if book I do, in there. I'll call you. Yeah, okay, literally. Great. But I know you have a bunch of other books coming mm-hmm. out, which is so exciting. So thank you for taking the time thank and letting you. us come to your beautiful home. It was so lovely to be in a home, to be in Ojai, to get yeah. to come here. And all your work has been Magical. so profound for us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you asking good questions. Oh, thank you. Bye, guys. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gay. Again, that was Gay Hendricks, leader and author of The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and the genius zone <laughs> and 35 others yes 35 <laughs> others those are the highlights Ooh, baby um, thank you all for listening again if you're not subscribed to almost 30 make sure you're subscribed and subscribe to our newest show which is the morning microdose so this is a curation of these vortex moments on almost 30 where we just found profound inspiration and this insane curiosity that just activated us in mind, body, and soul. I wanted to share them daily with you, Monday through Friday. So make sure you subscribe and let us know if you're liking it. If you do, give us a review. We would love it. We love you guys. Thank you so much for being a part of our community and our lives. Thank you for subscribing to the show, almost30.com for all of our courses and programs. If you're interested in that, our membership is alive and popping. We open enrollment again in the next couple months. And then we're on TikTok and Instagram. Heck yeah. I love a good TikTok, baby. Love a good TikTok. <laughs> all right, y'all. We'll see you on the next one. We'll Bye. see you soon.